Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, the Constitution Day edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Some of us still in the Washington area kind of like the Constitution, want to keep it around for a while. Jim and I are among those people. Seems like there are fewer of us these days. But, uh, Jim, let's get to our good martini. And this is one of those martinis where you're like, maybe we should just save this until after Election Day. But uh, it, it is very interesting to to see this because you hear about how all these young people are chopping at the bit to get out and vote for Joe Biden. And there is a new polling out that shows that young people do, in fact, favor Biden. But the underlying data is very interesting here and I think could be very, very encouraging for conservatives. Uh, this is from NBC News and Quibi. And so Biden does lead among among Gen Z voters, which is 7% of the electorate, it's uh, 57-33. And among millennials, which is a quarter of the electorate now, Biden leads 55-35. But Biden is excruciatingly unpopular. In fact, his numbers are not that much different than Trump's. Trump's negatives are higher, but the approval numbers are roughly the same. In fact, Trump is higher among millennials. Among Gen Z voters, Trump has a 27% approval rating, Biden 26 Among millennial voters, 32% approval for Trump, only 29% for Joe Biden. Biden at negative 41 in both of those camps. Trump pushing 60% negative uh, in, in both of those categories. And here's another interesting thing I thought, Jim. Young women, very much uh, for Biden, it looks like. By a three-to-one ratio, Gen Z women are breaking for Biden, nearly three-to-one, 69% to 25. Millennials, uh, women taking Biden, 65 to 28. But among millennial men, it's 45-42 for Biden. And among Gen Z, 44-42. So there might actually be some hope out there. All the young men in these generations are not the ones wearing black face masks in America's cities. Indeed, Greg. And you know, this, this kind of aligns well with other little bits of anecdotal evidence you see. Charlie Cook in Florida observes that he doesn't see, obviously you don't see nearly as many Biden bumper stickers or you might, I, I see yard signs in my neck of the woods, but this is a, you know, uh, a neighborhood with a decent number of government employees. You just like, you know, you're much more likely to see anti-Trump bumper stickers. You, you're definitely much more likely to see people uh, putting stuff up on their Facebook page about how terrible Donald Trump is. But you're not really seeing nearly as much Joe Biden. He's terrific, you know, particularly amongst young people. Now, you could probably point out we see this this story or a variation of this story uh, roughly every four years, every two years, if you want to throw in the midterms. People being less, you, you either see a variation of they haven't shown up in the past, but so far this year, it looks like the youth vote is going to be enormous and then on election day, huh, the youth vote really didn't turn up that much. Um, most of the time. It certainly in 2016 did not come out in the numbers that the Hillary Clinton campaign thought they were going to have. I don't know if the same thing will happen this time around. I think if you're the Biden campaign, this is something you probably ought to be worried about. And I think it's it's not exactly surprising that young voters would not exactly be inspired by a guy who's been in Washington for longer than you and I have been alive. Right, Greg? Yep. And the other thing is that he's, you know, he's not only a familiar face, he's turned 78 years old after the election. Look, this is not Barack Obama in 2008. This is not the sort of thing where people who are kind of tuned out of politics are going to look at this guy, listen to his speeches. That is what he's giving speeches roughly once every two days and just just being wowed and, and you know, being super inspired and, and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, doesn't mean he's going to lose. Uh, you know, the polling numbers still look pretty darn good for him. Uh, he certainly managed to do well in the Democratic primary. So Joe Biden is running as the good enough candidate. We will see if that is going to be good enough on Election Day. Well, as you pointed out earlier in the week, Jim, he got the nomination for not being Bernie Sanders. And now he's basically trying to make the argument he should be president because he's not Donald Trump. And uh, it's not because there's a great clamoring for Joe Biden. One quick anecdotal story. I have a former coworker who was a, a coworker of mine in the 2016 election. Uh, far lib, young woman, wore all white on Election Day wore all black the day after Election Day uh, when the results were known. Uh, uh, texted with her uh, not too long ago. And uh, she's I think she's planning to vote for Biden, but she's distinctly unenthusiastic about it. And so uh, there is an enthusiasm gap we're seeing in these polls. And whether that translates to showing up, and it usually does, uh, we'll find out, I guess, a little less than seven weeks from now. It kind of ties into something I wrote in today's Morning Jolt. There's a columnist over in the Financial Times, Janan Ganesh, uh, and the headline is, The Welcome Lack of Enthusiasm for Joe Biden. (laughs) And the subhead is, As the U.S. has found, worshipping political leaders is weird and pernicious. Now, ironically, I agree with much of this column. I agree. and I don't need my politician to be a messiah. I am not looking for him to, I don't want them up on a pedestal. I would prefer the American people to see their presidents and all other elected officials as, as contract workers. If you're good, you know, we'll, we'll give you a, a shot for four years. If you're good, we'll give you another four years. But we're not in love with you. You're, you're not descended from the heavens. Uh, there, I don't like anybody running around saying, I alone can fix it, as Trump said, or being described as some quasi-angelic uh, light worker, as the San Francisco newspaper said about uh, Barack Obama. So it is all great. I just know it takes a, you know, Republican president with a uh, enormously devoted base and a Democratic candidate who doesn't have an en- enormously devoted base for lack of enthusiasm to suddenly be welcome and a good trait. Yeah, exactly. I'd be curious to see what columns that person wrote uh, about 12 years ago and, and see how they match up. But uh, it kind of reminds me of the uh, Atlantic in the last week after Trump got nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, what do we even have the Nobel Peace Prize for anymore? I think it's time to do away with that. <laughs> I think it's so over. Dude, that's so 2009. All right, on to our bad martini now, Jim. And there's been a lot of debates, as you well know, over the past few months about COVID restrictions. Are they too restrictive? Do they need to be tighter? Uh, Everybody's crunching the data. What does the data actually show? And you would think that most people are actually trying to make a good faith effort to interpret that data. Not necessarily the case. That's the story in Nashville today as a councilman named Steve Glover, who I'm sure will be very popular among certain government personnel, has exposed emails not only showing that the COVID transmission rate in what you would consider the most boisterous part of town, South Broadway, which is kind of the bar scene. You get the pedal taverns there, all the bachelorette parties, people in pretty close contact, very low numbers of COVID cases traced to that. And instead of saying, well, that's good. Let's keep watching maybe just a little bit longer. No, they hid the data. Here's Dennis Ferrier of Fox 17 News in Nashville. On June 30th, contact tracing was giving a small view of coronavirus clusters. Construction and nursing homes causing problems. More than a 1,000 cases traced to each category. But bars and restaurants, a total of just 22 cases. Leslie Waller from the health department asked, quote, This isn't going to be publicly released, right? Just info for mayor's office? Correct. 
not for public consumption, answers the mayor's senior advisor, Benjamin Eagles. One month later, the health department is asked point blank about the rumor that there are only 80 cases traced to bars and restaurants. Tennessean reporter Nate Rao asks, quote, The figure you gave of more than 80 does lead to a natural question if there have been over 20,000 positive cases of COVID-19 in Davidson and only 80 or so are traced to restaurants and bars. Doesn't that mean restaurants and bars aren't a very big problem? Metro Health Department spokesman Brian Todd asks five Metro Health Department officials the question, please advise how you recommend I respond. The name at the top of the response is clipped off, but you may find the answer unacceptable. Quote, my two cents, we have certainly refused to give counts per bar because those numbers are low per site. We could still release the total, though, and then a response to the over 80 could be, quote, because that number is increasing all the time and we don't want to say a specific number. Jim, if there's anything the public loves even more than being led by people who make terrible decisions, it's being led by people who deceive them. You know, Greg, a couple of days ago I wrote a piece and, and you know, it was pretty tough on the administration. It was pretty tough on the people who have been saying uh, this is this pandemic's not going to be that bad. People are overreacting. Masks don't work. You don't need to wear masks. And one of the points that I made, there are also there are a significant number of people out there who believe the death count is a hoax, that the death, code is, death count is fake. Uh, now, it's here's the thing. If you look on Worldometers, which is my preferred uh, data source, but if you compare that to Johns Hopkins University, compare that to the centers, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention site, you'll see three different numbers that are usually apart by a thousand or a couple thousand. So you could say, ah, well, here's three allegedly reliable sources that uh, all have three different numbers. What's the real number? I think this, okay. All right. You know, the difference is that they're collating data at different speeds by different by different uh, sources and from different places. And, you know, generally the CDC count every couple of days catches up to what the uh, Johns Hopkins University count is. And the Johns Hopkins University count generally catches up to where the worldometers count is. I think the worldometer is accumulating them the fastest. That's why I like it. But if you don't like it and you like the other ones, fine. We're only talking about a few thousand difference in a number that is either at or has just surpassed roughly 200,000. When I hear people complaining about the death count, I never get any good number of like, well, no, actually, Jim, the actual number is, is closer to blank. They just say that's fake. They never really want to say because I think they would rec- most people would recognize Whatever the number is, it's really high and it's really bad and it's worse than it needed to be if we had made better decisions at the beginning of this pandemic. However, with all of that said, what's going on in Nashville is just going to take gasoline and pour it on this fire of public skepticism that they're being lied to about the coronavirus. And the reason they're being li- they feel like they're being lied to is that at minimum, these officials are not comfortable sharing the truth because it doesn't fit with what they thought was going to happen. Now, I, you know, is getting in a, in a crowded bar probably at risk? Yeah, yeah, because you're, you know, particularly if you're not wearing a mask, you're talking, you're close to people. Um, Sonny Bunch, who had an interesting column where he pointed out that by comparison, if you're watching a movie and you're, you're basically being quiet, then people aren't really expelling as much air. So you're probably not transmitting as much virus around. Doesn't mean that there's no risk to uh, going to the movies. It just, you know, it's an enclosed space. You could be. Uh, hopefully you're sitting, you know, some distance from somebody else. But, you know, it may not be quite as dangerous as being in a bar, talking to someone at close distance face to face for a long time. What's going on in Nashville, what we needed from the beginning of this is elected officials and public health officials to say, look, this is what we're seeing. 
this is the data that we, you know, that we can share with you right now. And be clear that, yes, we understand you're trying to measure something that continues going on and on. So you can say that as of this date, this is what the data says. And if the, you start looking at this and saying, hmm, you know, we're not seeing many cases we can trace back to bars and restaurants. Maybe you should reevaluate that policy. Maybe you should look at it. Maybe you should say, okay, maybe we can have it at 25% capacity. And if it's not, if you're at 25% capacity and you're not seeing a whole bunch of spread, you know, maybe you can move it up to 50%. Maybe not, you know, talk to other public health experts, but you know, it's the, and the moment people think you are making changes out of some arbitrary decision, out of some uh, animosity towards businesses, out of some sort of power hungry, you know, lust for the controlling people, some nanny state attitude, the mo- that's when they start tuning you out and they start saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I don't care what any of you say. That is a very destructive attitude, but I understand why that attitude is there and some of this is on those public health officials. And when somebody says, you know, hey, we see these numbers, this, these numbers point to not many cases coming from bars and restaurants. If the numbers say that, the right answer is, yes, at this point, we're not seeing that in this. Look, this is a new virus. You're going to find things that are going to surprise you in this data. The mo- you, you don't, no one expects you to have all the answers. No one expects you to be perfect. But they expect you to be honest. And the moment you're not honest... You create a situation where everybody's just going to want to do whatever the heck they want in this pandemic, which is only going to make things worse. A lot of different debates over the the data crunching. I know you've obviously been looking at. There are others uh, who have been looking at that around Washington, D.C., and uh, everybody seems to be able to uh, figure out how the data, uh, for the most part, works uh, to back up their preconceived notions. I'm not saying that about you, Jim. I'm saying that about so many other people. Uh, and, and just one other thing to add to this. You'd like to think that any city official... You know, you enact a lockdown. People aren't going to like it, right? That's, you know, nobody likes having their business shut down. Nobody likes not, you know, losing their job. Nobody likes not knowing how they're going to pay the rent or pay the mortgage or pay for groceries. You know, if you're a city official, you'd you'd like to think that all other things being equal, your inclination would be to minimize the lockdown, that you don't want to put any more restrictions on American lives than you have to, that you absolutely have to for public health. And what we're seeing here in Nashville, this was not the case, is that they saw some evidence saying, oh, we don't need to do this. And when the face of that, it was not, oh, okay, let's rethink our policies. Let's look to see if we can reopen these things up again. It was, shh, don't let anybody know, right. which is, you know, the, the exact wrong response in a serious crisis. Well, fortunately, Jim, as we transfer to our crazy martini, some people are upfront about how wrong they are. They just do it before they're proven grossly wrong. And Some might say today we're spiking the football on John Kerry, and I think you and I would have to say yes. Yes! Yes, we are absolutely spiking the football on John Kerry. Spike that baby! (laughs) So we, we of course, had the Abraham Accords uh, signed on a Tuesday. Uh, Israel normalizing relations with Bahrain and United Arab Emirates. Trump confident. We'll see if it comes around that. Even Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states, maybe Oman, for example, might come around and also normalize relations with the Israelis. This result is in stark contrast to what John Kerry insisted very strongly in 2016 was absolutely impossible. There will be no separate peace between Israel and the Arab world. I want to make that very clear to all of you. I've heard several prominent politicians in Israel sometimes saying well, the Arab world's in a different place now. We just have to reach out to them and we can work some things with the Arab world and we'll deal with the Palestinians. No, 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 and no. 
I can tell you that reaffirmed even in the last week as I have talked to leaders of the Arab community. There will be no advance and separate peace with the Arab world without the Palestinian process and Palestinian peace. Everybody needs to understand that. That is a hard reality. So, Jim, I don't know what's more um, delicious here. The fact that he was so spectacularly wrong or that he was just so sure he was right. Yeah. I I mean, you know, everybody makes wrong predictions. Everybody, you know, makes mistakes. Everybody thinks things are going to turn out one way and then they turn out. That that by itself is not bad. Although, you know, it's funny. You think of uh, former Defense Secretary Robert Gates saying that Joe Biden has been the most wrong uh, person in Washington over the past three decades when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, Greg, should we demand a recount? <laughs> Are we sure it was Biden and not Kerry? Because I know it's very easy to get these two guys mixed up. They've both been in the Senate forever. Both represent, uh, uh, you know, northeastern states, both kind of blowhards. But uh, every time I see John Kerry in this context, Greg, I don't know about you. I kind of miss him. Really? Being in the news every single day. You know? Really? <laughs> Doing the interviews with John Stewart and saying, "Would that it were, John! Would that it were," the you know particular pronunciation of Genghis Khan, you know, all, all the little things about him. You people may know I'm down. I'm now deep in nostalgia for the Kerry spot in the 2004 campaign. But like the, the fact that he's so adamant this can never happen, you know, you understand why James Toronto kept calling him haughty <laughs> and how he looks French. Uh, there's just such absolute arrogance in this. It'd be nice if, you know, by the way, if Kerry came out and said, you know, um, I was wrong. He's not, you know, if he came out and said, you know what, I'm, I'm really impressed with this. This is good work by the Trump administration and by everyone involved. Maybe there is a better day for the Middle East ahead of us. And just recognize, okay, you know what? Gee, Iran did create a sudden shared interest between Israel and certain Arab states, and it's getting there. The other point I'm going to jump in and kind of add here, not that this is something that Kerry asserted, but I've seen a lot since I uh, shared that originally. There are a lot of people, Greg, who really think they've got some sort of like, you know, gotcha zinger. When they say Israel and the UAE were never at war. <laughs> no, they were never in an open shooting war. That is correct. However, going back to the founding, the United Arab Emirates leaders were calling Israel the enemy. They barred Israeli travelers. At some point back in 2009 or so, they started barring any travelers who were suspected of being Israeli. There's like this thing where if you're not in a shooting war, you didn't have any hostility. Like That's like saying, oh, the U.S. and, and Soviet Union were never at war. We call it the Cold War for a reason, right? So you can make an argument that Bahrain was kind of less openly hostile to Israel by compared to other Gulf states and other Arab states. Uh, back, in, I found back and I found in 2009, the New York Times wrote an article about how compared to the rest of the countries in the region, Bahrain had a relatively tolerant atmosphere towards the country's Jews. Greg, they had 36 of them. And they had the last synagogue in the country had been preserved, but had not had religious services for decades. All Jewish symbols had been removed. And of course, the building had been defaced with graffiti in Arabic that says death to Israel. So let's not pretend that there was no hostility to Israel in Bahrain. And let's not act like things were always perfect. Now, back in 2008, the king appointed a Jewish woman, one of the 36, uh, to be his ambassador to the United States. He said that Bahraini Jews in the United States were welcome to return. So if you want to argue Bahrain had been kind of been leaning in this direction for a while, okay. But, you know, that's still a long way from actually formally diplomatically recognizing Israel and coming over to Washington and doing the big ceremony on the White House. Like, this is a big deal. Let the Trump administration have its victory lap. They deserve this one. Say, good job, and then move on to some other issue. Just take the loss and just get ready for the next day instead of insisting, no, this isn't really a big deal. Bahrain and the UAE and Israel have always been good buddies. I mean, because you look like an idiot when you say that. 
you know, nobody wants to look like John Kerry. <laughs> well, I think when you finally, after more than 70 years, recognize that a country actually exists, that's a pretty big deal. And uh, as more and more countries uh, add on here and actually normalize relations and allow uh, Israeli flights to, to go through their airspace, that's a big, big deal. If you haven't been paying attention to the Middle East over the years, these are huge changes. And uh, hopefully they keep coming. Jim, we'll reconvene tomorrow. See you then. It'll be Friday. Indeed. And boy, do we need a Friday. See you tomorrow, Greg. Absolutely. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please remember to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're always very happy and grateful to see a five-star rating and a kind review. Remember, you can get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'll see you Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.